Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, with bowed heads and humbled hearts and contrite spirits. Thanking you once again, Lord, for another day not promised to us. Lord, I'm asking that you forgive us of our sins and our iniquities and our shortcomings and our transgressions and those things that place a veil between you and us. I'm grateful for the time, Lord, that you've given me with my sisters, that we have yet another day that we may partake in your word, that we may be edified, Lord, and being taught by your spirit that we might teach others. So, Lord, with that, I pray that no flesh be glorified. I pray that no man's heart be heard, Lord, but I pray that through your spirit, that there might be comfort, that there might be redemption, that there might be understanding, that there might be, Lord, an empowerment, Lord, to go and do what you say. For, Lord, we just thank you for when we were broken vessels and as you are continuing the work with us, that you're slowly sanctifying us, Lord, that you're making us to be what you want us to be. And, Lord, in a place of wickedness, Lord, in a society that is self-serving and self-loving, we just thank you, Lord, for taking us through, because that is what you command of your people, that we ever progress towards the promised land, that we ever progress walking in union with you, Lord, until we are fully filled and you come to take us away, Lord, on that last day. So I just pray, Lord, for the brethren and sisters who aren't here today, Lord, who are going through difficult times, Lord, who are worried about you know, their finances, Lord, their health, and so many other things. I pray, Lord, that you bless them, that you guide them, Lord. And I pray that they be with us, Lord, in spirit. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray that you bind every foul spirit, every demonic spirit, every spirit that is against you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name that you cut it down this very moment, that it has no place here, Lord, that we just get a full feeling that the Holy Ghost may be here, Lord, that we may be immersed in him, that we might be cleaned, Lord, and that we might let our light shine in this world yes, of darkness, Lord. that you give us great boldness, Lord, to go and do what you said. For aside from you, Lord, we can do absolutely nothing. So we pray, Lord, because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are faithful. You are just and true and worthy of all Thank praises. You, we pray and we ask, Lord, that the eyes of those who can't see and the ears of those who can't hear and the hearts of those, Lord, that are cold like stone, that they all be open, that they all are willing to receive, Lord. For we just pray, Lord, that you do these things for your glory you. and your honor. In Jesus' name Jesus. we pray. Amen. Yeah, our brother um, Michael Adams, he was actually um, sharing a, an email with us today that a guy from Italy messaged him and said that he was thankful for everything that Michael Adams is doing and how, you know, we get on the show and, you know, he's learning and he's going through his fight and his struggle. And that kind of helped inspire this message because tonight's um, study is going to be called The Rough Side of the Mountain. The Rough Side of the Mountain. Because we all know that we have a place to go to in Christ. We all know that since we've been saved, it hasn't been easy. You know, but we also know that on both sides of the mountain, there are two different things we can expect. 
I know as Christians, life can be hard sometimes, and we look for easy roads, and we look for things to be um, not so rough for us. But I'm recognizing that the greater reward is on the rough side of the mountain, not the easy one. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's a Bible verse that says that things that come easily tarnish quickly. And we have to recognize that if we are to follow Christ and do what he says, then we got to be willing to go through whatever he calls us to. Whatever he wants to take us through, that's okay. Because what God is building in his people is character. He's building spirit. He's building perseverance. He's building tenacity. He's building these things that we are going to need to deal with it in the end times. And I want to say, you know, thank the Lord for that, that he is that much loved, that he's that, you know, good to us, that he knows what awaits his people. Mm -hmm. But if he goes easy on us and he allows us to live an easy life, how will we stand in those tough times? You know, so it's almost like a boot camp, like a training that he's taking his people through. And, you know, of course, his comforting spirit is there. His love is there. He's showing us the errors in our ways that we may continue to walk. But if we think that we're going to go up the easy road and not get on that rough side of the mountain, we're going to see tonight that they both have different um, things at the end of them. And if we know what's good for us as Christians, we'll let the Lord take us wherever he wants to take us because you only know it's going to be for your benefit. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's so many things that are in contrast with the other, like, flesh and spirit. You know, the, the spirit is weak, but the flesh is willing. I mean, the flesh is weak, sorry, but the spirit is willing. But all of these things he's taken us to because there is a fleshly walk and there's a spiritual walk. Yeah. And we've got to know if we're going to go in that spiritual walk, there's a lot of promises that God guarantees us both good and bad. But in the end, we will be able to have those peaceable fruit. I mean, just think about it. The gift of the fruit of long suffering. How do you get that except that you suffer long? How do you get patience? How do you get meekness? You know, by having that boldness taken out of you, having your pride dealt with with the Lord. How do you truly love? He's going to put you around people that are impossible for you to love so that your love can be perfected. This is how God works with us. So, you know, let's get started because I know we got to um, read quite a bit tonight. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 40 and let's hear about those who persevere in Christ. But man, for me, I'm learning. I want the rough side of the mountain, not the easy side. It may seem like a nightmare at times. It may f feel like God is not even there. But when you get through it all, it's just like, you know, graduation day. After all you've studied, after all you've gone through, after all the times that you couldn't even sleep. But man, when you stand up there and you get your reward, I imagine it's like boot camp in some ways. When you graduate on that day, you know, after all that hard work that you put in, man, you have a greater appreciation for this. So God knows what he's doing because people that ask God for lots of rewards, but they're not willing to pay the price for them. All they're going to do is kick it down and cast it out. All they're going to do is have it one minute and then realize, I don't want ballet lessons anymore, mom. Even though you spent thousands of dollars, I want to go and do something else. So, you know, it's going to take that discipline to walk with Christ, and it's going to take wearing our armor, being willing to take hits, being willing to go that extra mile with the Lord, because he only means to bring us into a greater inheritance, a greater salvation, you know, being a greater warrior for the Lord. All right, so this is Isaiah 40, and let's look at verse 1, and it says, Comfort ye, comfort my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably 
to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So as you can see, he's talking about, you know, accomplish the iniquity. He's talking about their comfort. He's speaking of their warfare and things that they're going to deal with. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, this is um, John the Baptist, who we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks, is a really interesting person because even though they're talking about him here in Isaiah 40, what we learn of John the Baptist is he was a man that was full of the Holy Ghost from his birth, and he pretty much had forsaken his life. John the Baptist lived every moment of his life to be the perfect vessel prepared unto the presenting of Jesus Christ. Who better than to tell people to be baptized and to repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming, except, you know, I mean, unless it was someone that denied himself, denied his flesh, lived every day unspotted from the world, that he couldn't be affected. And there came his boldness and the virtue and everything that God wanted us to have. So you see, John the Baptist was the perfect candidate because he had nothing to do with this, nothing to do with the world. He couldn't be bought. He couldn't be sold. All John the Baptist knew was to live every day eating locust and honey. I mean, this man was barely living. This man was not, from the day of his birth, you may as well say, he was fasting. This is how he lived. Except for his mother's milk, he didn't care about clothes. He didn't care about women or none of that. But when his time came, he preached out in the wilderness that people would come to him. So you want to talk about rough side of the mountain. And even Jesus later talks about Man, there was nobody greater than John except for the coming of Jesus Christ because his whole life was self-sacrifice. All right, so anyway, he says um, in verse uh, 4, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So he's talking about... A society here that would be changed, everything would, that was, you know, no good or not right in the eyes of God. He would either smooth it out and it would become right, or he would, you know, have to break it and have it go through things in order to be pleasant. See, we never, you know, people crack me up when they say, I ask the Lord, you know, to make me right before him and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And the Lord says, okay. So now I'm going to lead you here, 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 and here. But then when we start to feel the heat, all right, Lord, take me out. I can't deal with this anymore. But, you know, God has to work through us, man. Heat is a great purifier. So it says in verse 5, and um, did I read that? Yeah, verse 6. Uh, the voice shall cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So when John the Baptist would come, this is exactly how he would see things the way God sees them. God knows that this is a perverse and wicked society. God knows that the whole world lies in wickedness. He knows that those who are unbelievers are blinded by the mind of the enemy. And like, John, like Isaiah is saying here, and John the Baptist knew, James later spoke about, all flesh is grass. Everything that we see here that is permanent will eventually go away. Everything has its season. It comes and it goes. 
Everything that lives has a cycle that it goes through, but the word of God endures forever. So when you see things in that way, you're seeing them through a sober mind where you can say, yeah, I may be able to do A, B, C, and D, but I'm keeping my eyes on E because that is the goal after all. All right? So look at verse 9, and it says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, saying unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs uh, with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. So what's interesting here is, you know, we look at the life of a shepherd. All this stuff sounds real good. But if you look at the things in between, look at verse 11 again. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. How does a shepherd feed his flock? He makes sure that every single one of them eats. He watches over them wherever they go. Okay. And he protects them. But then it says, he shall gather the lambs with his arm. So that takes strenuous work to get sheep to just stay in line with you. Then it says, and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. So, I mean, you know, we all know what it is to be in the education system or to have nieces and nephews or children and to work with kids. Kids can be, you know, they can wear you out. You have a babysitter child and he's not really doing anything, but all of a sudden you're tired. You get what I'm saying? Like you feel so worn out. He's not even really doing anything, but you just, oh man, I need a nap. Because your mind is constantly focused on this little one. So you see, the shepherd's work is not an easy work, but he's even going to teach those that are with young to lead them gently. Verse 12, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the, with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and shewed to him the way of understanding? Like in other words, who could actually do this? Who can tell the spirit of God, this is how you counsel, this is how you do? You know, well, the Holy Spirit used to be one way, but now he's instructed, and now he's perfected. No, the Spirit of God is always righteous. That is God's Spirit. So in other words, he's saying, who wouldn't seek this counsel of the Lord? Who wouldn't do what God said? This is where we learn to trust him. So it says in 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. So you see, in God's eyes, because he is the great creator, there is nothing too big for him. But if we see things through the eyes of man, we think that, oh, some nations are great, like America and all these other things. But in God's eyes, they're nothing in vanity. Verse 18, to whom then will he liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? 
The workmen melted a graven image, and the goldsmith spreaded it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. So let's look at this again. It talks about the idolater in verse 19, about how he works on the graven image, and it's all in silver chains and blah, blah, blah. But it says, he that is so impoverished, like in other words, he that is hungry, he that is thirsty, it says that he hath no oblation, uh, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have he not known? Uh, have, have ye not heard? Have it not been told uh, you from the beginning? Um, <laughs> have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof as, are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them as a tent to dwell in. Now, you know, um, that's, you know, I'm not even going to get into that tonight, but that's about the firmament, how God made the earth. But it's making clear that there is nothing that compares to God. No matter how wise man is, no matter how many times man thinks that he has a way outside of God, it's going to be in vanity. Nothing will measure up except doing God's will and acknowledging the one true God. Verse uh, 23, that bringeth the princes to nothing and maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken, men, liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. So what's interesting here too is, like this week was kind of funny for me, because I feel like the Lord's been taking me up the rough side of the mountain, and I'm realizing along this trail that there's certain things because the the the, uh, the trip is starting to get too steep, you know, where it comes a point where I've got to be sober and have more balance that he's taking things out of my life. You know, I might have at one point taken, you know, my jacket, my clothes, my food, you know, certain things I may have in here that I consider high quality or something that, you know, I enjoy to do in my alone time. As he's taking me up this hill, I realize you know what, I can't take this. I've got to leave it here and trust him the rest of the way. And as I'm walking, man, I'm starting to leave little by little aside. And slowly but surely, I'm beginning to see the Lord, as verse 26 says, when it says, lift up your eyes on high and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. The Lord is beginning to get me to this where I believe it. We can all read this. But what keeps us from believing it are the obstacles and things that we have in our way. As he gets to take us the way that he wants, the Lord doesn't want you to bring anything but yourself. And then you will see how great he is. 
When you realize that there's a journey and it becomes rough, what you begin to do is lean on him because there's no one up that mountainside but you. Amen. Just you and God. And that's where he wants to get you to the place where your road becomes so narrow that you don't have time to worry about who's walking with you in this. You've got to keep your eyes focused on him. You've got to keep your heart single that you may know, Lord, you truly are magnificent. You truly are king of kings. You are Lord of lords. How do I know this? Because what I've just gone through, no man could have taken me through, not even myself. So we've got to get to this place where as we walk, this path has got to get narrow and it's going to be you and God. And if anybody else wants to walk with the Lord, they'll be walking that narrow way with you. But if not, I'll see you when I get back. But this journey is too important to put aside. Yes, sir. And I can actually vouch for that in my own life because when I came to know the Lord, 2000, November, I think it was, 2013, you know, obviously you guys know my story. I gave up smoking and eventually gave up alcohol. But the hardest thing, because it was rooted deep down inside of me, was something I dealt for a long time, was insecurity and... Because I had been in sexual fornication before coming to know the Lord, man, that was the hardest thing for me. To, even though I wasn't practicing or anything like that, it was the hardest thing for me to give up because it was rooted deep down inside of me. Mm -hmm. And if, especially like those, the sexual demons, even though that was out of my life, it was something that uh, had to, like, it was a thing that came out of me over time. Mm -hmm. You know, because of dealing with past guys and everything like that. So once that came out of me, the Lord took that from me. It was the fact of insecurity. Like, all right, Lord, uh, who do you want me to be with and stuff like that. And eventually, he's like, don't even worry about it. He's like, just focus on me and me alone and my plan for your life. And don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. And that had been the hardest struggle in my life for me to deal with was just, completely blazing out of my mind is the Lord going to have me be with somebody mm -hmm. and I tell you what in all honesty and truth this year was probably the first year where that stopped being an issue for me out of the past five years and I'm mm -hmm. just being honest because we're, we're going to go through things and the hardest things that we've dealt with in our life is going to be the hardest things for us to give up mm -hmm. in our life with the Lord because we, we want to alright Lord take it from me but we want to hold on to it Sometimes we don't even realize we're holding on to it, but we are. You know? Well, we do realize it, but we think he won't mind. Yeah. You know, but this is all a part of seeing him, believing him, and trusting him. You know, because we, as we talked about that study, wait on the Lord. You see, God's timing and ours is different. Mm -hmm. We see, we can hear the clocks ticking. God don't hear any clocks ticking in heaven. You know, God sees the beginning from the end, but we live from moment to moment. But if we just wait and we just let the Lord dictate, man, the Lord hasn't forgotten any promise. Even the things that I've asked him for and the things that I wanted, some of those things I never paid attention to. And the Lord just decided to do them, you know, but we got to know to get on his clock and not ours. Because when we're on our clock, we hit tick, 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 tick. And we're, oh, man, got to move. You know, I'm, I'm 35, I'm 40, I'm 45. Will the Lord ever do this and that? It doesn't matter. If you wait on God, he'll give you what you want, but you've got to trust him, okay? Because when you worry, that's a sign of, that's sin, you know, in many ways. But when God does something, I mean, it just comes. God probably, I mean, well, ain't no probably. He never forgot any of your prayers when you were eight years old, down on your knees, dreaming about the kind of 
wife or husband or job or career, anything that you want. God never forgot those things. But it's all about remaining faithful to him. It's almost like how kids will constantly ask their parents, Dad, you going to buy me that Spider-Man game or whatever like that? And every day your dad comes home, I told you, I'll get it, you know, whatever. And then, you know, because we all been there. Dad, did you buy it yet? Dad, did you buy it yet? Dad, did you buy it? And dad knows exactly when he's going to have the money to get it or when he feels like you deserve it. All you've got to do is wait on him. Yep. And when you try and put a square peg in a round hole, it will not work. All it does is prolong your rough ride when all you had to do was just trust. Amen. So look at verse 27. And he says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? How hast thou how hast not known, um, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. So, you know, in other words, basically, we've got to learn to trust the Lord. If he sees from the things to the end of the earth, if he knows the beginning from the end, if he does not faint, if he is not weary, if he does not sleep, what would you put your trust in? If you believe he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, then trust God. So you see, much of how we walk and what we desire and what we look for really determines how much we trust the Lord. A lot of people can play they, they trust the Lord until, man, your bill's got to be paid and, you know, you don't have this. And they're talking about evicting you this week. Then you find out if some people will say, you know what, Lord, I just trust you. I don't know how it's going to work. I just know what's going to work because you are good. When you get to that place with Christ, man, the Lord will shine through. Don't even worry about it. But so many people will say, I trust God. And they're looking at the clock. They're looking at the calendar. And they're looking at, God, why is this happening to me? You know, I'm a good child of yours. And but these things happen because you really don't trust. So what's in you is going to come out of you. We all have had that moment, but we all got to know that there is no under, there is no searching his understanding. God is, is endless. Amen. Look at verse 29. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Man, what a beautiful thing if we just allow God to use us. Why we get tired, why we get worn, why we get stressed is because we disconnect from the vine. We disconnect from Christ. There might be a thing where the Lord will say, okay, I'm going to take you through your career. You're going to do this. You're going to be faithful. I'm going to take you through your marriage. Whatever it is you're doing, just remain faithful. When we start to get outside of it sometimes and we're like, you know, I'm going to do this with my effort, my strength, my way. Man, you're going to wear out. But when God has a hold on it, he already has got it planned out. He's going to give you strength. Amen. I love, man, verse uh, 31. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That the only way that this will come to us is if we believe it. If God stands still at a certain place in your life, stand there with him. Don't run ahead. I don't care how, how rough it seems. I don't care how much you think this needs to be done now. 
If you see your father not walking forward or the Holy Ghost instructing you to remain still, remain still. It doesn't have to be what you think it is. Wait on the Lord. Trust in his eyes. Trust in his way. But this is all a part of that rough side of the mountain because in many ways, God can be leading us down the rough path because he knows that we need fruit. But we want to turn around. That can't be God because this is becoming too rough. So I'm going to go back the other way. No, as God goes, you go. But you've got to trust him because his plan is the only plan that truly exists. Your plan leads to a life of no God, no hope, you know, <laughs> no life, you know, and it just destroys you. It takes you through hell. When I look back at all my past relationships and jobs that I got into, someone else's idea and suggestion for my life, man, it cost me years that I, you know, even now you can't get back. You know, five years down the road, you can meet the person that you really want to be with. And guess what? The Lord is still taking things out of your life from that past situation. You know, because you won't love that person right or care for that person right. But it all came from disobedience. But when you trust in him, man, God will make everything all right. Because that's what he does. So let's get started. Let's go to Genesis 13. We're going to look at a story about two paths. And we're going to see the end result for both. Genesis chapter 13. You really begin to like God when you do things his way. Mm -hmm. God likes to surprise too. How many of us know that? He can't surprise you if you will go out and get your own reward. You know, it's just like, man, I've got something big. Just wait. Just trust me. But we want to go in, well, it must be the Lord, so let's just run with it. <laughs> God is good. So this is Genesis 13. Let's look at verse 1. And it says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hyde, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at, at, the, at the first, sorry. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. So they both pretty much had, you know, um, an abundance. Lot had everything he needed. Abraham had everything he needed. So what did God say? The land couldn't sustain them. Why don't you guys just separate? You got a lot of cattle. I'm not going to have your cattle eating up all my crops, okay? And you're not going to have this going on. So you know what? Why don't you just pick your land, you know, because you can sustain yourself, and let's work it out that way. So it says the land couldn't sustain him. And there was a strife between herdmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go, and I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, 
then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. So as you can see, when you look at this, Lot, when Abraham gave him a choice what to choose, Lot was like, man, if I'm going to choose something, man, look at this land. You know, it's got all this and that. Well, this is what I want. This reminds me of what the Bible say the Garden of Eden is like, you know, and all this other stuff. So he chose another path. He chose the path that looked the best, was the simplest. Sorry, but, you know, he looked and, um, you know, that's what he wanted. This is what Lot wanted. So let's look at uh, verse 12. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. So if you look at this, you know, of, of Lot's uh, place was easy. Now, you know, the land of Canaan here was not inhabited by God's people yet. This was a land of giants. Okay, so Abraham had to, had to live in the land of giants because Lot made sure that he had a great resort. He said, I'm taking all of the land of Jordan. So he didn't leave anything. But if you look at where um, Abraham is, um, he, dealt, he dwelt in the land and Lot had cities and everything. So Lot was pretty much, you know, living in luxury. So it says in verse 13, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that, Lot was separated from him. Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, uh, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. So not only did the Lord ask him to look at a land that definitely no man would live in unless he found trouble, he asked him to walk in it. He said, man, walk in this land. Wherever your feet tread, that land will be yours. So Abraham didn't have something given to him. Where Abraham wanted to dwell was already occupied. But as you can see, a carnal mind, which Lot had, he's looking at, man, there's nothing over here. This is great. But little did he know his tent was pinched towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You see what I'm saying? He didn't even recognize that. This is how we deal in the world. We might look at the world and the luxury thereof. You don't realize that road is leading you away from Jesus. You know, away from the path. It's leading you back to Egypt if you can just look and see where you're headed. Your appetite, your eyes, your taste for the things of the world will eventually lead you fully into the world. Abraham's looking at a lamb like, Lord, you mean to say you want me away from all my friends that are sinners, all my family and all these people? You don't want me to bring anything with me? I'm just going to trust you in the land of Canaan? But you see, the walk of a Christian is different because this is a spiritual walk. Abraham trusted God. And it's amazing. God didn't talk to Abraham until Lot left. You know, because Lot wasn't really of the Lord anyway, to some degree. So he's like, yeah, I want to talk to you. So anyway, let me make the point. So he says in verse 18, Then Abram uh, removed his tent 
and came to dwell in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So he didn't just pitch a tent. He built an altar because, Lord, if this is where you want me, this is where the sacrifice is going to be made. So let's look at verse um, chapter 14. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of uh, Shinar, uh, Ariok, king of Eleazar, uh, <laughs> Kedalomer, Keleliomer, I guess, uh, king of Elab, and Tidal, king of nations, that these men war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersher, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adam, or Adma, and uh, Shemaber, king of uh, Zeboam, uh, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. Okay, so right now, Amraphel is Nimrod. Okay, the book of Jasher tells us this. Now, this is a war of giants getting ready to break out. All right, Abraham is in his place, Lot's in his place, but this is a war getting ready to break out with the Nephilim. And it says, all these were joined together in the Vale of Sedum, which is the Salt Sea. That's the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Kelioma, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedilioma, Kedilioma, I guess that's how you say it, and the kings uh, that were with him, and smote the Rephaim, that's a tribe of giants, in Asheroth, or Ashtaroth, or Kernium, and the Zuzims of Ham, and the Emims of Sheva, Kariathim, uh, or something like that, and the Horites in their uh, Mount Seir, unto El Paran, uh, which is by the wilderness, and they returned and came to En Mephath, <laughs> um, which is uh, Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, and dwelled in Hezazam Tamar, and there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim. I'm trying to find the place. I want to get down uh, far enough, but these kings were fighting one another. And let's look at uh, verse 10. And it says, And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother, a brother's son, and dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So we understand here that as Lot was, his tent was pitched near Sodom and Gomorrah, he was dwelling in that city, in that area, where um, even when a fight broke out and when the wars broke out between the giants, they ended up kidnapping and taking Lot too and everything that was there. So this situation that started out good ain't seeming so good anymore. And this is how, in many ways, when we're not walking with God and we're with the enemy, that demons will break out in your life and begin to claim areas of your life. Where do they begin first? With the heart. They turn your heart towards them and the pleasure thereof. Then where do they go next? To the mind, to get you to seek after these things and want them and desire them. So this is how, in many ways, the world beats us down and takes things from us. But now Lot is, is kidnapped. So let's look at verse 13. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol, the brother of Adner, and these were confederate with Abram. And Abram heard that his brother was taken captive. Uh, he, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 
318 and pursued after and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Heba, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So if you can understand here that Lot was captured by what decision he made and what he wanted, Abraham, who's the faithful servant that was built up in the Lord, went to go and rescue Lot. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedalaomer uh, and of the uh, kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, uh, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands. And he gave him tithes of all. And so you understand here that uh, Melchizedek showed up, which I believe is an early, you know, uh, Christophany, which is Jesus Christ here. And he blessed Abraham, one, for staying with him, not being a part of the world, rescuing Lot, freeing him from where he is. So now God is rewarding him, but Abraham is blessing um, Melchizedek for freeing him from his enemy. So Abraham put no stock in himself, no, um, uh, what do you call it? He didn't trust in his ability. He's trusting in Melchizedek for him being set free. I promise we're going somewhere. So it says um, in verse uh, 21, and the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyselves. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a, a thread, even, un, even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich. Now, oh, Abram rich. So let's understand this big time. The king of Sodom is like Satan. Okay, Melchizedek is blessing Abraham, and Abraham in turn is giving Melchizedek, hey, you know, the Lord that freed us from where we are. But the king of Sodom said, give me the men, and I'll give you the goods. So the king of Sodom is only interested in souls that he can buy. This is the devil, okay, is what he's asking. And Abraham is saying, I don't want anything from you, not even a thread nor a shoe latchet, because I recognize that if I submit to you, then you're going to say that you made me rich. So the glory will be yours and not God's. So you see why God in many ways wants us to stray away from certain things that are not of him, because what we'll end up doing is giving praise to the enemy. Now, we can easily see where this was, um, and we're going to go there, but I just want to make this point. So he says, save only that which of the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Adner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So in other words, let them get theirs. I don't want anything to do with you. But Abram knew that he was a man of God. Let's go to Matthew 4 and let's look at this. Because this is exactly, you know, what, what Abraham had gotten rid of is the same thing that Jesus did and how we ought to walk. So let's look at Matthew 4. Can you read the next verse? 
You want to read it? Oh, you like you. Um, it's 15.1. Mm -hmm. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and um, thy exceeding great reward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and that's the whole thing is that Abram knew that, that God was all he needed. Abram was sold out for the Lord, and this man was rich, and he refused to even take any more because he believed his richness was in the Lord. That's a great point by Christina. Let's look at Matthew um, 4, and let's look at verse 1. And again, we're talking about that rough side of the mountain. Abram was blessed because he had trusted God. Regardless of what he had to go through to get Lot, regardless of where he had to set up shop with the Nephilim running around everywhere, or the tribes of giants, he was still trusted in the Lord, and because of that, he was blessed. Yeah. So let's look at Matthew 4. Let's look at our Messiah. Then was Jesus, remember this is after his baptism, was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, if you read the Mark 1 account, it made clear that Jesus was out there in the mountains, in the hills with wild beasts and everything else out there. He wasn't just tempted of the devil. There was wild beasts and things out there. So you can see the spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness, taking Jesus where? Up the rough side of the mountain. Okay? So let's look at verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So what was Jesus doing? Denying himself. Why? Because the Spirit told him, you know, you're not going to eat for this, this amount of time. You need to be filled. So denial towards himself that God might be pleased is what Jesus did. Look at 5. Then the devil taketh him up into an holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So when the Lord, you know, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. You know, it's like, he said, I will not be brought under the power of any. Even with us Christians, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Jesus, no doubt, it would have been would have been caught, but he would have obeyed the devil, which would have made the devil his God. Yep. So Jesus didn't submit anything to Satan. Verse 8, again, the devil taketh them up into an exceeding high mountain and sheweth all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The thing that um, that stands out most to me in this is that he says, and him only shalt thou serve. So we've got to look at this. I know this is something we don't like to look at, but if Jesus was offered all these things while he was in the wilderness, and he had forsaken them to walk that narrow path to be with the Father. And all Satan is saying is, man, if you get down and worship me, I'll just give you any of these kingdoms. What do you want to be, a president? You want to be a CEO? What do you want? It's all mine. I can give it to you. And, you know, a king or whatever. And Jesus said, I will worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So if we're not serving God, 
that really what we're doing in many ways is serving the enemy. That's something to think about here because he would not have a stake in anything that was a part of the devil. Man, the devil was trying to offer Jesus an easy life, even though he would have betrayed him. But the point is, is he was offering him, man, why deny yourself? We know you got the power to eat. Why don't you just eat? You know, why, you know, pretend to be somebody you're not? You got the power to do miracles or whatever you need to do. Why even go and deny yourself unto being forsaken by the world and being denied and being hated and all this? Man, why don't you just join the fun? You know, become somebody in the kingdom. Be somebody in my kingdom, man. Be someone of respect. You don't want to walk around in that old road. Man, I got the best and I've got the finest. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, but when Jesus said he would only serve the Lord thy God, he was outside of the system. Just like Abraham, I don't want you giving me anything because you're going to say that you made me rich. And what would that do? Take the glory from God. So we've got to learn to trust God as we deal with this rough side of the mountain. I just wanted to bring that point up because it's important that we get this. Let's go to... Um, uh, now, let's jump right in. Let's go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 14. Second Samuel 14. But too, with that, um, the Lord was telling Satan of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord thy God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love thy neighbor as myself. And, you know, it's embarrassing to say it, you know, being a minister and all, and you know, serving the Lord these last few years, but I'd have to admit, there's a lot that I didn't understand. I might've heard it. I might've understood it academically, but to put most of these things, and I don't want to make it sound wrong. Like I didn't know what this was. I get it. But the thing is, is you really don't get it until you get it in the heart until God shows you your adultery, your fornication, the things that you truly do. It's one thing to look at things from a, a physical sense and say, well, I'm not sleeping with, with women unmarried, okay? I mean, or, or whatever. I'm doing what God says. You know, I'm not lying anymore. I'm not doing this and that. Man, God has got to take you to an even finer place up the mountain to where you have a true awareness of just you and him. That's what we were talking about at the start of this. But this is this is real because the Lord is showing me the idolatry within my own heart, mm -hmm. which is why there's things like I just don't do right now. And I don't want to because, you know, when he starts to show you this hurts me. See, sometimes God won't tell you that because he knows at the time you can't handle it, you know, because then you would say, OK, Lord, so if I can't do this, where will I go? What will I do? So little by little, as you grow, he'll start to say, you know. I always meant to tell you this, but um, you know that thing that you do with your buddies? It, it really it bothers me. And, and more importantly, it's cheating. You know, and I'm just telling you this just so you know. I mean, you, man, okay, Lord, so what do you want me to do? What do you think I want you to do? <laughs> you know, what have you done with the things in your past? Yeah. I want you to drop them or whatever. You, okay, Lord, I won't do it, but... When he starts sharing his heart with you, man, you don't just get to the place of I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't hang with those that do. He takes you in your heart, man, in your soul, and he begins to show you all iniquity. And then when he's done with that, he'll take you even further. Yes, sir. I also wanted to make a point on when you were talking about Abraham and the land of Canaan and Lot, the Sodom and Gomorrah. Like you said already, Lot took the easier route. 
and ended up captured. Yeah. Well, and that too, and it's like, you know the saying, and of course they take it from the Bible and twist it around, but the grass is always greener on the other side. Mm -hmm. And you find out that it's not. But mm -hmm. look at what Abraham did, is that he stayed in the land with the giants, and that's what the Lord wants us to realize. Hey, I don't want you going off and doing all this other mess. You have giants in your life that you need to get over, but I'm going to place you in an area that if you stay there and you trust in me, man, it's going to be great because the Lord gives it to us. We don't go out and try and get it for ourselves. Here's the other thing, two different purposes. It's one thing to climb a mountain for your own glory. It's another thing like Abraham did to think of who would come later, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, Christ, David. They all inherited that land that Abraham had to forsake self and go into. Mm -hmm. You know, so Abraham, even when he took the land, because God gave him direction, Lot just chose with his eyes. And you see where it got him. But God gave Abraham direction to, you know, hey, take this land. This will be yours, and your seed will be as the dust. I mean, they would multiply, and they would grow. So Abraham was not thinking of himself. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest differences between people who live lives for self and live lives for God. Right. They're two different kinds of people. Because when you live life for self... All you care about is self. When you live life for God, all you care about is God and what he wants. Exactly. So, you know, I had to get to the conclusion because I'm asking the Lord to free me from a lot of stuff. Like, would I be comfortable being a bum? Would I be comfortable being nobody in society? And then, you know, the spirit hit me with, how could you be nobody in society when you represent the king of glory? You see what I'm saying here that's missing from the mind is that if you represent the king of glory, how can you be nobody in society? But see, if you join the collective, you are nobody because you're just another name, just another number. There's nothing different about your life than anyone else's. But a selfless person that loves even his enemies, that will do what God says, that's somebody that God is really using. God will, will have us live selfless lives. When we focus on self, what can we be other than what everybody else is? You think you're the first person to, to make six figures? You think you're the first person to do this or that? In the end, what does that make you? All flesh is grass. And I'm not speaking against money or any of that. Man, Abraham was rich. But God made Abraham rich. He supplied Abraham. And with those riches, Abraham was faithful. We've got to understand where we are with this thing. So that's all I'm saying. So let's go to uh, 2 Samuel 14. And I want to look at verse 23. Now, this is a time where if you go to um, 2 Samuel 12... David, you know, had already killed a man for his wife. You know, it was proclaimed on him that the sword would never depart from his house. And you notice when David fell, two things, two things were going on at this time. He was self-serving, looking at another man's wife, not at war, doing what he should be doing for God. But he was basking in the sun, watching someone else's wife take a bath. So he began to enjoy being king. Well, I'm a king, so let's see how far... I can go with this. So he was self-serving, one, and two, he fell, not when he was a faithful young boy before the Lord. When he was doing what God says, he fell when he became king. Mm -hmm. And that's why when we're going up that mountain and we're, we're learning in Christ, we got to make sure our steps are secure, rooted and grounded before we go to the next level. Well, it, you know, and the Lord even gave me revelation on this. Remember when we talked about and on Hebrews 6, that once you have experienced 
the powers of the world to come. Once you have done all those things that Jesus did, that if you should fall away, the Bible says there should be no more repentance for you or whatever like that. And, you know, the Lord gave me greater understanding by showing me a mountain. If you look at a mountain, if I just start climbing up a mountain and I go five feet and I jump down, nothing will happen. If I'm clumsy, I might get a twisted ankle, but I have the option to climb again. If I go up 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet, I may have like a broken ankle or I might, you know, lose my life. But, man, when you reach the top of the mountain, you know, scientists have even said when you fall from high places, you're dead before impact because that, that whatever fills your lungs and they burst. You know that the air will fill your lungs and you die before you even hit the ground. But you see, as we go further up the mountain, it is going to become more risky because you can't afford to fall at this point. And I'm not saying God is not a redeemer and all those things. He's just showing me, man, look at the mountain. You can easily go up and you can come back down. But once you get up there, every move you make becomes risky. So that's just something for us to think about. So we ought to be settled, rooted, and grounded before we go to level two. Because the ride isn't going to get any easier. But one thing we will do is have more faith and trust in God. And we will be able to sustain more as we go up. So at this time, okay, I said all I had to say this. David was king, and that's when David began to fall. This is when David was disobedient. You find that most of your disobedience comes in ways when you're in ministry, even more so than when you're a young babe in Christ trying to learn your way. Why? Because the devil at this point will try and hit you with pride, get you in a place of, you know you're good with God, so why not do what you do? And, you know, we can start to have the mindset to believe we're with God, but we can be strained from him, okay? So these things can happen to us, but David fell when he became king. And at this point, David's son... Uh, Absalom had just killed his half-brother Amnon because he raped his daughter or his sister Tamar, which is David's daughter. Okay, so this is where we are right now. And now um, David is looking because he's finished mourning over Amnon. He's asking for his son Absalom to come back. Okay, so this is where we're going to pick it up in 2 Samuel 14 and verse 23. And it says, So Joab arose and went to Gesher, or Gesher uh, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. So David didn't want to see him. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. And from the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So, you know, this is kind of like an early or well, later, um, you know, thing of Satan now, you know, we can be beautiful and everything and dressed up and seem like the suitable individual. And, you know, these things can get us in a bad place if we let the enemy do this. Mm -hmm. One thing the devil will know is if you're rolling with God, he can't stop you. So he'll try and get you to stop yourself by pushing pride. So it says, and when he pulled his head, like he cut his head or shaved his head, for it was at uh, every year's end and he pulled it because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he pulled it. Uh, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels uh, after the king's weight. And unto Absalom there was born, there were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of a fair countenance. So he even had beautiful children. Uh, so Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. 
Therefore Absalom sent uh, for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See Joab's field uh, is, is near mine, and um, he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom, Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may, that I may send thee to the king uh, to say, Wherefore am I come uh, to Gershur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Uh, so Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So, you know, um, David was no longer mad at Absalom for killing um, Amnon. So Amnon did something to get his attention, and now, you know, he's kissing Absalom, so all seems well. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man uh, that, that, had to, um, that had a controversy came to the king uh, for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man uh, deputed or deputed uh, of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come to me, and I would do him justice. So as you can see, Absalom had his own ambitions. He now wanted to be a part of David, not to really be with him, but to get a little mercy in it for himself, that he might have his own power. So as David is the king, Absalom is standing outside of the gate. So if anybody comes to see the king, Absalom's asking, well, why are you here? And then when they tell him, this guy's taking matters upon himself to try and solve them. This is what he's doing to get his own glory. So it says, and it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, which is kind of like um, obeisance, like offering, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You know, this is unfortunate, but you see this in a lot of churches and a lot of ministries and things like this go on. You know, you can come to teach people. People can have their own ambitions. Things like this happen. I've seen in churches where the pastor built the congregation, built up the ministry, and you find that somebody will eventually become, you know, a minister in the, um, in the uh, group or in the, in the church. And what he does is, well, I think the Lord is calling me now to move on. So he doesn't just move on to go and seek and do and build like the pastor built. He'll slander the pastor before other people and tell people, well, you see, this is the reason I'm leaving. 
and then some people will fall in line with them. And you find when this person leaves, they take a third of the congregation with them. And it's like, whoa, hold up, man. How did you end up doing that? And then, you know, some people say, well, I think he's a better teacher. It's not that. That person was slandering to try and have their own church because they had their own ambitions. When you're climbing up the mountain, whether you're a minister, a king, or whatever, this is going to happen to you. You're going to experience betrayal. Look at Judas. The whole time Judas was with Jesus, he had his own ambition. He never believed. So this is going to happen, but betrayal is just one of those things that God shows us we can't trust in anyone but him. Not family, not friends, not husband or wife, you know, because he later says these things will come against you. So he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. Uh, for thy servant vowed a vow while I abode in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. So as you can see, again, he's got his own motives, behind the scenes working, trying to gain his own glory. Verse 11, when Absalom went 200 men out of Israel uh, that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything, uh, and Absalom sent for um, Ahithophel, uh, the Gilonite, <laughs> David's counselor from, this, from his city, even from uh, Gilo, I guess that's it, Gilo, uh, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. So notice the people that were with Absalom, it made clear that they were simple. They were people of simplicity and they didn't know anything. This is how a lot of false prophets work with people. They work with the ignorant and the unlearned to gain their popularity. It's not, you know biblical God-fearing, God-studying people, they go after people that are ignorant and unlearned. Verse 13, And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at, at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So as you can see, Absalom's takeover didn't occur just in, you know, he just decided to come up with a plan. It took 40 years. And we've got to even look at this concerning ourselves, that 40 is a number of transformation. When we spend time in the world, when we're doing things of our own ambition, they may not seem so rough at first, but as time goes on, man, the devil is slowly, you know, hitting us with cancer and disease and trying to corrupt you through mind and heart and will, that eventually your body will begin to serve your pleasure and not God. Mm -hmm. All right, so he says, And the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was afar off. 
and all his servants passed on beside him, and all the Sherathites, and all the Pelathites, and all the Gittites, six hundred men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then said the king of, I guess that's Ittai, um, the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also in exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, uh, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Seeing I go whither, I may return thou and take back thy brethren, mercy and truth, be with thee. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth and as my Lord uh, the king liveth, surely in what place my Lord the king shall, shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. So he's making clear here that David, remember, had to flee. Now notice who went with the king, just a remnant. It was 600 men plus that went with David, but Absalom had the whole town. He had everything, okay, in his favor. But this guy is saying, and, and being faithful, he said, as surely as the king liveth, as surely as the Lord liveth, um, in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or in life, even there also will thy servant be. So as you can see, God is looking for these kind of people to even serve him, because the enemy has everything else. And David said to Ittai, go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zedok uh, also and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God. And Abiathar uh, went up unto all the people and done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zedar, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and shew me both it and his habitation. So David was saying, no need in taking the ark, because if God wins this battle for me, then the ark will be there, and I will be back in the place that God puts me in. So this took faith. He didn't take the power of God with it. He left it there for the people, because if God is with me, He's going to bring me back. But here's another thing to understand here. Think about the, the amount of humiliation that your son ran you out of town. This is going to happen when we're climbing up the mountain. And we're going to find out a, a few other things. We don't have time to get into all of this, but we're going to get into enough that we understand that this walk is so important for us that we might grow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, where am I in verse uh, 24? I think I'm in verse uh, 25. And the king said unto Zedar, Carry back the ark of God in the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and shew me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also unto Zedar, The priest art not thou a seer, Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, <laughs> Achimaz, uh thy son, and Jonathan, uh, the son of Abiathar. 
So he says, see, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Zedek, therefore, and Abiathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept. See, he went to the ascent of Mount Avalon and wept as he went up and had his head covered. And he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head. And they went up weeping as they went up. So this is humiliation for David. He's going up this hill. His people are with him. His head is covered while he's going up. So that's a type of humiliation because remember, no man should cover his head. His head is God. But his head is covered because of what he's going through. I promise we're going somewhere. Verse 31. And one told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel uh, into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshiped God, behold, Hushai the archite uh, came to meet him and his coat rent and earth was upon his head unto whom David said, if thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Uh, then mayest thou uh, for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. So David didn't want people with him. And I believe that this is how God is also working with his people. He may put us in some of us. He may have outside of affairs dealing with things. Okay. Because they might be mature enough to handle them. Then he may have others that are inside of the society, inside of Satan's kingdom that he intends to use to overthrow kind of like his spies in the midst. Mm -hmm. All right. And hast thou not uh, there with the Zodiac, and Abiathar the priest, therefore it shall be that what thing soever thou hast, thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zedek and Abiathar the priest. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, uh, Ahimaaz, Zedek's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye hear. So, so uh, Hushai, David's friend, uh, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Okay, so Absalom actually has the throne right now. I'm actually trying to break this story down to where it um, makes the most sense, but yes, this is it. This is chapter 16, and I promise we're not going to do all this because we don't have time. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, uh, met him with a couple of asses saddled and upon them 200 loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred of summer fruit and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses be for the king's household to ride on and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem. 
For he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine all shall, be, shall that pertain unto um, Mephibosheth. And Ziba saith, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. And when King David came to Behirim, uh, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, or Shemi, uh, the son of Gera. Uh, he came forth and cursed still at the, um, as he came. So he's cursing at David. And he cast stones at David and, and, and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, when he cursed, come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou, thou man of Belial. So as David, remember, was seen before the Lord, because I want to make this make some sense before we go on, because I know this story is long. As David now sought the Lord, and he's trying to do things right, and God had already proclaimed that the sword wouldn't depart from his home. Okay, David had to leave this place in humility. He's going up the rough side of the mountain, and now he's running, to the, running into this guy that's trying to help him to go up the way. But while he's going up the way, here comes one of David's worst enemies that hates David because of Saul. That's who this guy is. He's a relative of Saul, and he's now cursing David on the way up, calling him a man of Belial, not trying to let him get through his past or whatever he's dealing with. The devil's trying to remind him of who he is. This is a part of that trip. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned, and the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in the mischief, because thou art a bloody man. So this man is laying it on real thick. You bum, you no good. Yeah, your son took over everything, and you ain't nothing but a man of Bilal anyway. And woo, the house of Saul has got revenge on you. Woo-hoo, in your face. This is what you're going to go through when you're going up the rough side of the mountain. Yeah. Now that David is down and out, his enemies are coming out out of everywhere to try and destroy him. Yeah. This is how the devil uses people. Verse 9. Then said Abisha, the son of Zeruah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord of the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. So this guy is failing to recognize what this whole journey is about. Remember when Peter wanted to cut off the ear of uh, Malchus, who, um, who hit Jesus, or they wanted to take Jesus? But Peter didn't understand that this was the hour that Jesus had to be tried, that he had to bear his burden, that he had to walk on this cross or, or, or get on this cross or carry it. This is what David is going through right now in carrying his cross. So I want to hold up here for a minute because I want people to understand that when you carry your cross for Christ, you're going to find out that you have more enemies than you actually thought. This world is going to betray you. People are going to turn on you. Things are going to happen to you because this is all about your self-denial so that God can live in you. Mm -hmm. I mean, and many times the Lord wanted to do this with me to take certain people out of my life. And I think what slowed my walk up as a Christian was I wasn't ready for that to happen. 
Although I knew I was a Christian and they were not, I still wanted to be around them because I wanted to try and win them to Christ. Even when they told me point blank range, they're not coming to Jesus. I have little to no regard for your God, so I don't want anything to do with them. But there was a part of me, because I love self, I wanted to carry these people with me. So you see, if I would have carried my cross earlier in trusting the Lord, letting him choose what he needed for me, man, I would have been miles ahead of where I am because I would have trusted God to lead my life. So, you know, this guy's cursed him and he's doing all these things to him. And, um, you know, David's man here wants to cut this man's head off because he's, you know, making fun of David. And the king said, what have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done hast thou done so? So David is recognizing this is a part of his judgment. This is a part of his sanctification and purification. This man is only coming and cursing me, just like the devil is only doing what he's doing to the people of God, because God means for the devil to purify you. Okay, he's taking you through a trial of affliction. And the devil is, you know, thinking he's whipping on you and doing all these things. God only means it that the flesh may die, that we may serve him and do what he says. So David doesn't want to be defended here. This is when you know somebody is really after the Lord, not self-serving. And David said to Abisha and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will requite me, good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillside over against him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. And Absalom and all the people of, of the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel uh, with him. And it came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou uh, not uh, with thy friend? And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, uh, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the pretense of his son, as I have served in thy father's uh, presence, sorry, presence of his son, as I served in his father's presence, so will I be in the presence, in thy presence. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, uh, give counsel among you what ye shall do. Okay, so this story is kind of long right now because this guy is going to tell, give David's king or give David's uh, son advice to go and sleep with David's wife so that David will be further humiliated and that the people might actually believe that he really is running Israel. So with all these things going on, because I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, Absalom goes after David eventually, but it's a setup. David's men give um, Absalom the uh, power 
or give him the, uh, the, the knowledge to do the wrong thing so that way they could be led into a trap. Absalom pursued after some of David's men. He gets his head stuck in a tree. There's no lie. He was on his horse chasing, trying to kill David's men. He gets hit by a tree. He's stuck up in a tree and can't move. So Joab, who was one of David's loyal men, sees this and wants to kill him. But everyone is saying, you know, we left him up there for three days. We're not going to touch him because David, even with all this persecution, doesn't want to see his son slain. So what ends up happening is Joab says, well, I'm going to do it because I know if I let this man live, we're going to die. You know, so he was fiercely loyal to David. He took three, th three darts and threw it through Absalom and killed him. But after this was done, David was later brought back into town. He remained king. You know, no one really took his throne. And the people loved him and went after him. But the strangest thing is even this man, Shimei, who was a relative of Saul, began to praise and love David and say, David, what I did to you before, you know, forgive me for it because I want to, you know, make things right with you. And David permitted him to. But I said all that to say this in the story is that as David was going up this mountain, as he was dealing with what he had, God had to purge him and his enemies. He had to leave him even subject to his enemies that his will in David could be accomplished. So David became an even greater king. Many of the great Psalms that David wrote even later were around this time. Why? Because he had been tried. His heart remained to the Lord. He took the punishment or, or the affliction that God put on him only that he might get to a greater status in God. But as Christians for us, it's time that we stop running from this, that we stop going away from it because what God intends to do with us is perfect us. But perfecting us is not going to be to let us go our own way. Sheep without a shepherd go and they die. They eventually get caught by wolves. They eventually starve to death. But when the sheep learn to stay with the shepherd and they get those legs cracked and they get, you know, constantly directed to do that is right and pushed with the staff, they will only make it to the destination that they're supposed to. So it's important for us as we go up the rough side of things, always remember that God is with you. Always trust him and what he's calling you to. It may seem, you know, like nothing now, like it's desolate, like things are just not being met. But if God is your head, he means to take you to the place of your destination that he has predestinated for you and I. It's important that we get that. I probably shouldn't have read all that stuff, you know, because, I mean, I could tell you guys were like, okay, so where are we going with this now? What's happening or whatever? But the thing is, is that we've got to recognize that God will purge us from all unrighteousness if we just stick with him. Right. We've got to trust in God's plan. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Tell Christina's worn out. But too, also, if you look at it, all Absalom had to do was just leave. Mm -hmm. All he had to do was just say, hey, this is what the Lord called me to do, and I'm just going to go. But like you were saying, he didn't do that because a lot of church folk won't do that. They'll leave, and they'll say lies and everything. So he got his just judgment because of what he tried to do to David. Mm -hmm. And along the way, David was learning about his the Lord's plan for his life through the persecution, through the fact that he had to get shoved out of the kingdom, shoved out of his comfortability zone for that to happen. To be made right. Mm -hmm. And David became more humble. He even later told Solomon, 
you know, do as the Lord says, walk in the ways of God. And, and you know, David was known to have a man that has a heart after the Lord, but how many of us can say this if we're carrying our cross and going through our persecution that we love God and we know God put us in this? See, that's a whole different plane of a believer. David said, when they said, well, man, let's cut this man's head off for him insulting you. You know, and he's like, man, what have I to do with you guys? This is my persecution. This is my fight. I know why God is doing this. Maybe God permitted it. You know, maybe this is what was supposed to happen to me. And David became a greater king of great understanding. I think personally, even with all he did, he was the greatest king in Israel because they always compare kings to David even after he died. And, and you know, he didn't have a clean, a perfect record, but his heart was perfect before the Lord. David never was mad at the Lord, never hated the Lord. There might have been times he felt alone, but he trusted God with everything. How many of us can say that? Man, we don't trust God with everything, but that's the goal. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Let's look at verse 1. And it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So if we look at this here, as Christians, we're all baptized. So we all have that in common. We all ate spiritual meat and drink, meaning we're learning in the word. So it doesn't look like there's much difference between us. And we all drank water from that rock who was Christ. Okay, this could be a bunch of people even baptized in the spirit. We've all been baptized of Christ. Mm -hmm. But look at verse five. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness, in the soul. This is all a part of that walk. God has to take us through the wilderness of ourselves that our will may die out and that God's will can be brought before us. Now notice the children of Israel did not go into the land until their will became God's will. As long as they were fighting to go back to Egypt and eating berries and cucumbers and all the food that they claimed they had, as long as they didn't want to face the giants and live their lives out in peace, okay, their will was separate from God. So what did he tell them? Go back into the wilderness until this thing is figured out. Then for all the disobedience, because you got to look at the children of Israel this way, they were a body. Moses might have been in some ways not the head of the body, but he led the group. Okay, so as your body, if your, your top can't separate from your bottom, then your body has to go together as one. So during that time in the wilderness, God was using those things to sanctify them that certain things could be taken out of them. Once the ones who were older that wouldn't obey God died off, they were sanctified. Once Joshua took the, the knives or whatever and circumcised the youth and went forward with them, they were sanctified. So now their will became God's will. One of the biggest ways to know if we are truly sanctified in Christ is if our will matches his. Outside of that, we still got a lot of things that are impure. You know, your heart is not exactly pure like God and doing what he wants. So one of the biggest ways to know where how far we are in sanctification is, is our will like God's. Are we obeying him? Are we being led by the spirit? And these are things that he wants to work out. So he says that they were overthrown. Verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. 
Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Now notice everything Paul is going through here is what Jesus went through when it says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus knew exactly what wilderness he was in, and he was using it to the fullest of his ability. I'm only going to serve the Lord with this soul, you know, <laughs> I mean, or whatever. I'm going to deny this flesh so that God can fill me. And what happened later? Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, and a fame went out, you know, um, from among, I mean, from all the people. Just like when David came back after his experience running from his own son, he was sanctified and the people welcomed him back again. If we want to get serious about winning souls, we've got to take the rough side of the mountain. That's the only way that we can be realistic. We've got to carry our cross until we die that Christ can live and then souls can truly be won. We can rake in a harvest then. So it says, neither murmur ye. And some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. So, you know, again, we got to ask the question, if God took certain things away from us in our lives that we enjoy, would we be mad at God? Or would we say, Lord, the reason you wanted me away from this and I lost this is because this is meant for you to do what you need to do in me. Yeah. These are questions we all got to ask. Amen. So it says, now all these things happen unto them for examples, for examples, and they are written for our admonition, our warning, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. As I said, as we go up the mountain and we learn about God and we increase in relationship with him and our will slowly becomes his, man, we've got to take heed that what we do on a daily basis can be against God. You know, he takes us right out of our comfort zone. There have no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, uh, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So as you can see, God doesn't put more on us than we can handle at any time. That's just his great wisdom. But as God wants to advance and grow with us, we've got to make sure that we're on the path, no matter what it looks like. You know, we've got to trust him. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessings which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So this is something that I was going to say for Tuesday night, but I want to use it in this particular case because we got to recognize that we're one bread and we're one body. How are you and I any different from Paul? How are you and I any different from Peter or any of the, how are you and I even different from Christ? Other than the fact that he's the Messiah that saved every soul that he came down as God in the flesh. But he's making clear, if you're going to do communion, and you're going to partake in that cup, like Jesus did with his disciples, then you've got to recognize, if you take that step, you're a disciple. So that means that you ought to walk as Jesus walked, that his will might be done. That's important. 
For we are, all right, verse 18, Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice unto devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Man, I'm telling you, the more we go over scriptures that we went over, this thing is becoming louder and louder to me that I know very shortly my life is going to change. I mean, completely different than I'm living right now. Mm -hmm. Totally different. Because when he says here, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. You know, at one time I looked at that being holidays. I looked at that being, you know, just people that don't know. But see, a Gentile, what he's bringing up here, they're, they're unknowing. They're heathen. They, know, they never had a relationship with God. They're worldly people. So what worldly people, people that don't know God, sacrifice, they sacrifice the devils. Now, I have to ask myself in my life, Derek, is that true? And I would have to say, yeah, it is. Because of the manpower, because of the hours, because of the things that I put into the world that have nothing to do with Jesus, I can't say I'm serving him if this is not what he wants for me. God has grace, though, where he brings us into places. You know, hopefully we got a couple of brothers coming um, this Tuesday because I'm just, you know, telling people whatever, praying that the Lord, you know, brings them in that they might be delivered. But, you know, we sacrifice the devils. We don't do what we do in our jobs for the kingdom of God. Because even if we're a teacher, even if we're a doctor, we got a Hippocratic oath. If we're a teacher, they expect you to teach on evolution. You see what I'm saying? So there's always something pushing towards the kingdom of God. But I personally believe, because Carlin and I talked about this, and it's kind of funny that with one way or another, it's kind of like many of us in the ministry are involved in the education system. So I think that God has got a plan. I think he's working something out where he's intending for us to be used that we might spread the influence and get to a lot of these youth about the truth in Christ. Because I've even found myself praying for some of the youth and they're accepting of it. But I think he's, he's about to do something different. Everyone can't attack it from the outside. But I think what God wants us to do as we go in is that we stay sober and recognize where we are, that he might be glorified. Because if God wants to keep you on a job, he's not going to move it from you. A quick point on that, too. Uh, a young woman that I worked with was telling me that not too far from where we worked, out in the, the stockyard area, a guy was murdered at over one of the paper mills. And what happened was two guys that he worked with murdered him, threw him in his truck, drove him over to the paper mill and set his car on fire. And Jeez. the way she acted towards it was, she's like, oh, it'll be in forensics in five years and I can watch it. And I'm looking at her like, are you nuts? You tell me this story, but that's the evilness of people. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ, not because of religion, because of relationship, because of all he's done for me. Said, because outside of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, it's like, look at the pure evil of what people will do. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, man, people got to understand that the system, this is Satan's kingdom and everything like that. That kind of, you know, boiled my blood a little bit that she was looking at it like, oh, this is exciting. These people are cold-hearted, man. I mean, they've seen enough death that I'm sure that they are desensitized to it, you know, and all this stuff. But, 
You know, it's kind of like what Jesus said, why he didn't allow the devil to reign in his life. And when he talks about the Gentile sacrifice to devils, it's just something to think about, you know? Like, you just want God's protection. You want his wisdom in dealing with this. I'm not telling anybody to just jump and change your life because one thing we got to understand is you can't. You can't change your life unless God changes it. That's where we got to get to the place in obedience. Like somebody will say, well, I heard the truth. I'm leaving the job. You can't. I mean, you can try it. But the thing is, is, is that what God called you to do? Because whether you leave a job or not, and God's not involved in that, it doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? It's all about having his direction and where we go. But when we get to the place of obedience where when we're walking down the street, we may see drug dealers fighting or doing stupid things cursing and carrying on, we're going to look at them and say, you know what, he needs to be saved too. Man, I'm going over there because this person needs to hear about the Lord. That's what Henry Gruber did, but you know, when it's convenient for us and we see it through our eyes and not his, what do we do? We look for an old lady crossing the street, somebody holding a Bible or whatever, and then now all of a sudden we want to be Christian? We've got to be realistic, man, and this is what I'm saying. So he says the Gentiles sacrifice the devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So we got to understand some things may be okay for us, but they don't increase our walk with God. They're not helping us in many ways. Just because God didn't say you can't do it doesn't mean that that thing is permitted by God. You see what I'm saying? It's all about the path. And then he says, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And what does he mean by that? Well-being. You know, looking after others. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and be and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, um, eat not for his sake uh, that shoot it and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So as you can see, we do what we do until God tells us not to do. When God gives us revelation to go forward and do something, then we do it. But the whole talk tonight about this rough side of the mountain is understanding that it's all about obedience. Many of us will not go the way of God because it looks rough to the carnal eye. But what we've got to eventually get to the place is, is loving and trusting. We've got to trust God. We've got to love him more than anything. We've got to desire the things that he wants and not what we want. Amen. This keeps us safe. Yes, it does. All right, two more places I want to go and then I will um, close. But you know, when I read things like you can't drink from the devil's cup, you can't drink from the Lord's cup, man, those things become so hard sometimes because I've tried to find other means in this Bible where some things may make sense, but I can't. It's it's just starting to get louder and louder. I remember at one point, you guys will remember this too. When I used to teach, I used to say, you know, do what you need to do in the world, 
But when you get time, give God time, as long as you give him time. Well, you know, I've gone more in understanding now. I'm recognizing that it begins with God first and everything else second. I wish I could tell people this was different, you know, so I repented of that. Lord, what I taught, I'm at fault for, you know, forgive me. But now I'm recognizing unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. And it's just that simple. Unless he's got a hand in it, unless he's working in it, unless he's permitted you to do a thing, you labor in vain. It will have nothing to do with God. He's only going to ask for that which he, he's only going to take back that which he asked for. Second Corinthians 12. You know, and, and I'm not, I wasn't trying to deceive anybody when I taught it. I actually thought it was true. But you see, that was the level of my understanding. <laughs> you know, that was what I knew. That was a, a side of the mountain that I was walking on that I thought I could see the top. But I realized I had to take a few more feet up to say, whoa, man, this thing is getting real steep, you know. And it looks like the pathway is way smaller now. But I didn't understand that at the time. I can admit that. <laughs> All right, so this is 2 Corinthians 12. Let's look at verse 1. And it says, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come, oh, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth, such as one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such in one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. So notice he's talking about being raised up unto the third heaven, I imagine he was in God's throne room, okay, caught up to the third heaven, and he heard God and angels and other things speaking things that, you know, would be unlawful for anybody to hear, but God is permitting him to have this understanding. And he says, of such in one will I glory, yet not in myself, I will not glory, but in my infirmity. So what's happening to Paul here? Where most people would be proud to get a sign and vision of the Lord, Paul is recognizing, yeah, I was allowed to do this, but that only brought in my perspective that God is that real. So what will I glory in? My infirmities, not in myself, because he knows he's working for the Lord. Look at verse 6. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth. Uh, me to be or that he heareth of me so this is another important thing for us as we go up the mountain which God intends for us to do we've got to realize there's not even room for you up there though it gets so steep that the only one that begins to be uplifted is Jesus Christ mm -hmm. so when people want to give you glory Christina that was an awesome message you know that was something that you did I realized you have a real gift of teaching which can be totally true. But in the end, you know, the glory is the Lord's. I can't take glory for this. I don't know what I was going to say one minute from the next. I trust in the Lord. But you see, when you do this, God gets the glory. 
You got people like Todd White going out touching people, you know, doing different things, but never calling people to repentance. But then he's looking at himself as, I'm the man. You know, and then he'll tell stories about it to make you think about it. Like, there was one at McDonald's where he said, the guy, he wanted to heal the guy, and the guy told him, get away from me, stay away from me. So what did he do? He, you know, took his debit card and swiped so the guy can get his lunch and get out. So the guy got mad at him and swung at him and said, I told you, don't do anything for me. So then he was like, you know, hey, man, I just want to heal you. I just want to help you. I just want to do this and that. So the man said, all right, fine, finally, go ahead, do it. So he said he touched him, and um, the man was healed, and he said, the man said to him, yo, where are you from? You know, and he said, you know, I'm, well, I forgot what answer he made. But then he said, the guy said, no, you ain't no church person. You Jesus, man. You know, no, you Jesus. And he was like, no, I'm not Jesus. And the guy, no, no, you Jesus, man. So if that's true, okay, let's just say the man did say that. Why are you telling that to everybody else? Because you want people to see you that way. You see what I'm saying? This is how people can glory in self. Now, he wasn't saying I'm like Christ or whatever, but he's saying, oh, you Jesus, man, because he looks for that. There's even videos of him saying he can do things that God can't or Jesus can't. I'll send that to anyone who doesn't believe it. Because the point was made that Jesus heals those who have faith. Jesus also didn't heal people that had that didn't, you know, he didn't do miracles because, you know, in places where people had no faith. So what does he say? Well, I can do this. And God, you know, Jesus didn't heal like that. But see, I can do this. Man, you, you're pushing yourself above him. And it's that simple. So as we climb up the mountain, we've got to learn to give it to the Lord. That's what this is all about. And I know a lot of people don't like what I said about Todd White, but you know what? I have no gripe with the man. But if there's false doctrine, if there are people that are looking to try and serve Christ, and this man is leading people astray, then, man, it's got to be exposed. If anybody saw anything in me that, that me leading people astray, then I should be exposed. But that's what this is about, mm -hmm. you know, helping people to make it. So he says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So what was given to David? David was given a thorn in his flesh from a messenger of Satan to buffet him that he might be right. This is also a part of that walk. As we grow in Christ, I mean, Henry Groove has been struck with cancer I don't know how many times, how many brothers and sisters of Christ are suffering, man, in the hospitals, you know, but they're continuing to serve the Lord. This is that thorn in the flesh that God allows the devil to do that we don't go too far. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he could glory in his flesh, but nobody would if you went through what Paul went through. Exactly. So he says in verse 8, for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So is he glorying in the miracles? Is he glorying in the, in the signs and the visions and things that God gave him? He's glorying in his infirmities because he's recognizing God deserves the glory. Mm -hmm. What happens to me in this physical life what happens to my life is really no big thing to me. It is about serving Christ.
that his will might be done. So you see, my grace is sufficient. You know, Lord, I'm sick, you know. I mean, you know, who's to say one of us may not lose a leg in here one day serving the Lord? Now, we can say, Lord, can you grow that limb back out? And the Lord may actually tell you, my grace is sufficient for thee. Continue to go and do it. What Paul has come to the realization is he doesn't matter, nor does his life, nor does his physical countenance. What matters is Christ. So if I got to go and minister on one leg, if I got to walk 43 kilometers, you know, a week with no car to go and preach the gospel, that's what it is. And you see, those people like my brother Calvin in Kenya, this is exactly what he has to do. He has the glory in his infirmities that he may serve the Lord. We've got to get a reality check of what this whole thing is about. Because we are spoiled to the core. Yeah. Verse 10. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying ye have compelled me. For I ought to have been uh, commended of you, for in nothing am I behind in uh, the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. So he's recognizing, man, I'm lower than any of the apostles, but I'm still glorying in the Lord and doing what God says. That he did labor more than them all. Maybe the Holy Ghost meant for him to say that. I don't think he was bragging because Paul went through hell, you know, and his info was well documented in what he had. But you see, when you go back to verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities. You see how David's rough walk was? You see how David wouldn't even let anybody tell him that this is not going to happen to you, David. Remember when Peter told Jesus, oh, be it far from you, Lord, that you're going to be persecuted. He said, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. Yep. Why? Because thou savorest the things that be of men and not of God. This is the same thing that we're talking about. These two different walks. One side up the mountain is smooth. Well, you don't bear much and it probably doesn't go that high. But the rough side of the mountain, God intends for us to. Why? So when we get there, we will appreciate it. That's what this is about concerning the Lord. So you get the chance. I don't know if you guys um, have it all or in your spits. No. Wait a minute. Let's look at verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and uh, be spent for you, though I, I mean, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. You see that? The more that you love your neighbor, the more that you love Christ, the more that you go out to do what God commands, you will be loved less. Why? Because you're doing his will. That's why the devil stuck that thorn in them. Man, people are going to hate you. But there will be people that will love you. But that's what this is all about, is dying out to self so that Christ can live. And though things may seem rough, all it is is to burn off the flesh. So let's go to uh, last chapter of the night, Matthew 11, and we'll begin at verse 1. I want it rough. 
I mean, no rougher than the Lord intends for me to have it, you know, because there's some things I can't bear. But I'm just saying, you know, I want to be taken through that. I don't want to enter into heaven. Peter went to jail, angel delivered him. Paul was whipped. This happened, that happened. And I just come up on an elevator saying, you know, hey, guys, um, how's everything going? You know, I'm a child of God, too. And everybody at the table looking at you like, man, who are you? You haven't birthed. You haven't been anything for Christ. You know, we've got to go through like he does. I don't want to arrive on an elevator. I want to be in that hall of faith with all those who are persecuted that believe Christ. I mean, if the Lord wants to take me on an elevator, you know, then blessed be the Lord, you know. But the thing is, is we've got to go through. Yeah. If you want to take me on an elevator, well, Lord, I'll pursue whatever you want, but I mean, come on, man. How can I can see myself as worthy and these guys have went have gone through? I'm greater than they. Matthew 11, let's look at verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and shew John again those things which ye do which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know, I really believe deep down that a lot of these things are not just healings. I believe there are other things, as we talked about before, when he says the blind receive their sight, Nobody's more blind than an unbeliever or a religious person. And then it says in the lame walk, you know, you don't even know how to walk or where to walk unless Christ leads you that way. The lepers are cleansed. I mean, you know, you pretty much before you found the Lord were a leper. Look at all the sins applied to you. Exactly. Full of spot and blemish and the deaf hear. You know, that's another thing. You sit in church for 40 years and not hear the truth. Then he says, and the dead are raised up. You know, nobody's more dead than an unbeliever and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know why? Because there is richness and life in Christ and his word. So he says, look at verse six. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? Why did you become a Christian? To see a reed shaken in the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Those that wear soft clothing are not in the wilderness. They're not in the battle. They're not in the fight. They're in king's palaces where it's safe to go. But he made it clear. This is what he's asking. Why did you become a Christian? Why? To just get by, get over in life, for things to be so much easier? Did you not know that, like Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that you would have to die so that Christ can live? That as we are raised with Christ, we are also permitted to the death of Christ and carrying our cross? This is what he's saying. So yes, he's speaking of John. I'm not trying to put my own spin on this. I'm trying to make the point. People didn't believe John because John was too rough and rugged. John was too not like anything that they had ever seen. John is probably the first man that they ever saw living outside of society, totally denied, no fear of man whatsoever, no respect unto man, 
telling it like it is so that people can be saved. He was like a freak of nature. This guy even went to Herod and said, it ain't lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He spoke to a king that way. So you see, when you, and I've, I've witnessed this many times, even time spent in the wilderness with the Lord. I'll go into a church, hear the truth, tell people what they need to hear, and I'm looked at as some type of ruffian with no love. Like, man, you know, you believe that? You don't believe in God's love? Man, you got the devil in you, you know, or whatever. Why don't you show respect? Or they'll see the pastor come out. Oh, this is our beloved pastor, you know, and everything. And you, so what time does the sermon start? Because, you know, we want to get this thing going. And they would consider that disrespect. How dare you come into the pastor's office and you don't shake his hand or ask for permission to come in there. They are respecter of persons, which God is not. God will tell any of his people at any time what they need to know. A king means nothing to God. We read that in Isaiah. The kings and all these people, they're just regular people. They're like the grass, man. They have their season. They come and go. So John was a freak of nature. John was like, some, man, this guy, you mean to say this is God's representative? Look at how clean the Pharisees are in their robes. And look at how they're in the places and they, they got their little phylacteries with them. And look at the respect that they gain. And you want us to believe, after looking at these men, that that man is a man of God. Man, look at him, man. Camel and, and locust and wild honey. This man, is, he probably didn't smell too well. But this guy is speaking something. So you see, God sent a messenger like John because in order for people to believe Christ, they had to look beyond what was physical. They had to hear the truth and believe it. There was nothing about John just like there was nothing about Jesus that was comely or that you would desire. Master stroke of God the Father. Is what's said true? And is that all that matters? Or is it really about they got to look a certain way? They got to speak a certain way in order for me to be pleased. You know what your problem is? You're carnal. You're sensual. You're soulish. You want to feel it. You want to see it. You want to smell it. You want to taste and touch it. But what God is calling for is a greater reality in believing the truth. Because man, if John is like that, why would we want to follow him? Because John hit people in the heart, repent. And for those who believed, they went after the repentance. They didn't even see Jesus yet. Mm -hmm. This is another thing in walking on the rough side of the mountain. Yep. These people walked in faith. So he says, but what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, and I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he in whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy the way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women... There has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. So let's look at this. We're about to close, but let's look at this. You mean to tell me that there is none greater than John the Baptist who represented the Lord like this? Think about what I'm saying here. That you mean to say this caveman was greater than anybody that came before him? Man, what is God asking of his people? Where does he really want us to go? How does he really want us to be? And, you know, there's countless examples of this, which will be in next week's study. But what did he say? What is pure religion? To take care of the fatherless and the widows and to what? Keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's pure religion. All right. So anyway, so it says, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence 
and the violent take it by force. So what does that mean? You've got to fight your way in. You've got to dig. You've got to fast. You've got to pray. You've got to carry your cross. You've got to deny self so that you can make it in. So I, I agree with the rough side of the mountain because you've got to fight your way through it. So he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, uh, which was to come. Now we know that this is true because how was Elijah dressed? He was also a man that lived outside of society. What did he have? His loins girded up with the leather, just like John, and wearing a mantle. He that have ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows. So, you know, I, I really am understanding what he's saying about these children sitting in the markets. Think about this. When you sit in the market, what are you in front of? Everything that you can possibly have. Okay? These people are sitting in the markets full of abundance, everything. I mean, everything you would want. And he says, calling unto their fellows. And saying, we have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath the devil. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they were um, most wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. So we got to understand here what Jesus is saying is wisdom justified of their children. You can show people what the Bible says concerning God's word. Some will believe it, some won't. Some people won't believe it because they don't want to go out like John the Baptist. Some people will believe it because whether they're like John the Baptist or not makes no difference. Is it true? But he's saying that no matter how you come with the gospel, some people are going to believe and some people won't. But you see, when the, the unbeliever, no matter what you show them, they won't believe it. You don't have to talk to someone who wants to see Christ very hard. I realize that. When you go to them and you tell them, they could be the biggest sinner in the world, but something stops them in their tracks and they're like, you know, that might be true. I don't know. You know, whatever. And then you hear, you want to see some more? Yeah, send it to me. But then you got other people, no matter what you show them, man, point blank range. I'm talking about they could be a pastor or anybody, they won't see it. John came the proper way, totally denied and they hated him. Jesus came to preach the gospel around publicans and sinners. He even had a glass of wine every now and then. Okay, and look at how they looked at him. This is what I'm saying. You know, but wisdom is justified of her children. This is what they call them, a drunkard. But even the Bible says later on that, you know, you ought to have a little wine for your stomach. I think it's what uh, he, it's in Timothy, right? Mm -hmm. He says, when you're not feeling well, I don't trust the wine today, but I'm just saying, <laughs> he said, have a little for your stomach and it'll, you know, clear it up. But this is about, you know, having things under control, pursuing the Lord and doing what he says. The children of Israel thought that God, if he was good, he would have just guided them into the place threw all the mountains out, threw all the giants out, and, and rested them in the promised land. But what God knew is, if you want something bad enough, you'll fight for it. Mm -hmm. If something is important enough for you, you will go for it. Yeah. 
So no matter whether my path is straight or crooked, whether my path is rough or not, I'm going in the ways of the Lord. And it's time that we see it that way. We've got to know what this rough side is because if they're talking the mark of the beast and they're talking society collapsing, how can a spoon-fed, spoiled brat survive in those days when the pressure is really going to mount? So you see, when we learn to deny ourselves through life, when the mark of the beast comes, some of us may be able to go without food two or three weeks, you know, because you've been doing that anyway. You know, you're trusting in God and God is going to, he's not going to let his people starve. He will provide for them if for those who believe, but it all comes a part of walking the walk of Christ, no matter what's in front of us, because those rough rocks, all they're going to do is burn off the dross that we can have Jesus. So I just want to say to people with that, I love you to give the Lord a try. Hopefully tonight's study wasn't too confusing. We had a few dry spots, but the, the main goal of this whole thing is to give it to Christ and to walk in his ways. No matter where he leads you, doesn't matter. It's all about giving it to him. Let's go to Psalms 121. It's going to be real quick. Yeah, Psalms 121 and verse 1. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, for whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. So to look at this real quick is just that, you know, we have to look to Jesus Christ with everything that we go through. And a lot of times we make that easier than what it sounds. It's a lot easier. I mean, it's, it's very easy, but then our flesh wants us to go here, flesh wants us to go here, flesh wants us to do this. Mm -hmm. And if we're not sanctified in the Lord, because the Lord never moves, we're the one that moves. You know, it's just like you're talking about that mountain tonight. Well, the Lord is also that mountain. The mountain stays put, but we get closer or we get further away mm -hmm. to that mountain. And it's like he will keep us, and he will keep our feet from being moved if we stay with him, because it says, he that keepeth thee will not slumber. Verse 4, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall not slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by the day, nor the moon by night. So if we trust in the Lord, no matter what, no matter what life seems to throw at us, the devil seems to throw at us, no matter how rough it gets by going by the rough side of the mountain, if we trust in the Lord, and that's, that's something that, you know, all of us, we can say, I mean, I can even say that, you know, I trust in the Lord, and it's not that I don't, but I still believe that there's part of me that's not fully given over to the Lord yet, and me I'm too. praying, Lord, reveal that to me, because it's like, you got to think about, like, if we're not going in certain directions with the Lord, then we got one foot, come on, man, you got to get up, right. and it's just, like, we got to have that revelation given to us, so it's like, all right, Lord, there's something in my life that's obviously not right, and I want you to show me. But if we trust in the Lord, He's not going to let these things smite us or anything like that, you know, uh, 
get at us because he's going to, you know, take care of us. Verse 7, the Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in this time forth and even forevermore. So it is true that like you're preaching tonight, the rough side of the mountain, we just got to give it to the Lord and trust him and his ways and just, just do it. Just go. And then we go up that rough side as we started with the first chapter of the night in Isaiah 40. He talked about, man, those people that trust and wait on him, they shall, you know, mount like eagles, you know, not be weary, continue to do. But it all comes in trusting the Lord and not in ourselves. That's right. All right. Anybody want to pray tonight? Heavenly Father, I want to come to you this day in Jesus' name. Lord Lord God, first of all, I just want to thank you for this day that you've given to us. Lord Jesus, I also want to thank you for your love and your kindness and your grace and your mercy, Lord, but also for your chastisement, Lord Jesus Christ, that shows us that we are still one of your children, Lord. Because we never, ever, Lord God, want to get outside of those things with you. We never want to get outside of your protection, Lord. We never want to try and do things our way. We never, Lord, want to ask you to give us what we want. We want what you want, Lord Jesus Christ, because if we ask in our own flesh, Lord Jesus Christ, then we're not asking of you. We're asking of ourselves. And Lord Jesus, I'm just praying, Lord God, that you try us, Lord, in that in that fire of affliction, Lord Jesus Christ, that we be tried as gold, as fine gold, Lord, that when we come to the other side, Lord, that we know that we are one of yours. And Lord Jesus Christ, with this message tonight, with the rough side of the mountain, Lord God, we have got to seek you. We have got to find you, Lord Jesus Christ. We have got to desire after your will for our life, no matter what it is, Lord Jesus. If we are questioning in our own lives, what is your plan, Lord Jesus? Because we may not always see your plan laid out because you see the the, the beginning from the end. But we have to trust, Lord God, that you have a plan for our life. And just follow after you, Lord God, and to not get distracted with the world and all the the things that are easily distracting us today, Lord God, with the cell phones and the iPads and whatever electronic devices are out there, or even with people, Lord, because your word says, how can two walk together lest they be agreed? So we have to understand, Lord, we may be witnessing to people that they come to know you, but Lord Jesus, we also have to understand that if they decide to go another way, we are going to follow after you in all holiness and all righteousness and all pureness, Lord Jesus Christ, and just keep our minds focused on you because the greater goal out there today lord god is that there are people going to hell falling after a false doctrine lord jesus christ that says it's easy when that is not the case lord this is a life of repentance this is a life of sanctification lord jesus christ this is a life of if we're going to be persecuted what side of things do we stand on lord and we have to know that now Lord Jesus Christ, because the people in other countries that are persecuted for what they believe, they know what they signed up for, and yet, Lord God, they still believe in you. So we've got to get rid of this sugar gospel out of our diet and come to the conclusion that your word is bathed in blood, Lord God. It is a warfare, a spiritual warfare that we signed up for, that we are in the army of Jesus Christ, and that is what we have to be, Lord. So I pray in the name of Jesus that we will take on the armor of God and keep it on and press forward into the spiritual warfare, Lord. If anyone's going through infirmities today, heal them in Jesus' name, Lord God. Whatever we're going through, Lord, to know it is not greater than you. Nothing, 
-hmm. is greater than Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God, for all and everything that you've done, that we continue to build in our relationship with you, to bear fruit for you, and to make disciples for you, to give you all the glory and the honor and praise that you deserve. In Jesus Christ, your most holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.